everyone. Welcome to another episode of Picture Blurfect with your host, Naomi Harlenbachis-Wilkerson. All right, everyone, I've got some news. The vid has entered my house. Um, yep, it's, it's really unfortunate. We went last weekend for 4th of July, made the long nine-hour drive back to Kentucky just because we like to bring our dogs. That's the reason why we didn't fly. Um, so we we drove. We had a great time. I really enjoyed seeing my family. And we spent one day in Louisville with my husband's family and then one day um, over in the just outside Lexington, so Nicholasville, Kentucky. Shout out Nicholasville, uh, Nicholasville, Kentucky region. Had a great time. And then, you know, on the drive back, you know, my husband was like, you know what? My throat's kind of scratchy. And I was like, I didn't hear that. I did not just hear that. <laughs> and so it was it was kind of strange. Like we kind of played it off because my sister had um, come home and she was like, yeah, she's been dealing with a head cold, but it's not COVID. She's been testing right before she came and, and we saw her. So she was like, I, I don't have COVID. And so we just assumed that he got whatever she had, just this kind of weirdish kind of head cold and stuffy sinuses or whatever. And then on Saturday morning, we got the notification that my husband's mother uh, has COVID. And so she was like, just, you know, letting you all know. So Brad tested and he's positive. And so we're just kind of hunkering down. Miraculously, though, I don't have COVID. Like I did. I didn't test yesterday just because I was kind of in denial. I was like, well, if you have it, I have it. I don't have any symptoms so far. I'm feeling fine. You know, I don't I feel great. I feel just totally normal. Thank you, vaccines and science. You know, this is wonderful. But I'm kind of holding my breath. And this morning I tested and I didn't have it. So maybe it's just a matter of days now. It just hasn't circulated in my system. But it's kind of weird because we came back Tuesday and that was when my husband was starting to have symptoms and I still don't feel anything. So maybe I'm in the clear. Who knows? But anyways, everyone get tested, vaccinated, mask if you still can. Like we still wear masks everywhere, um, in the especially indoors. But it's just a it's a reality now. This pandemic is just part of our life. It's just really frustrating. But anyways, my my brother and sister-in-law earlier today, knowing that my brother has COVID, they sent this really cute like cookie package um, just to like, hey, hope you feel better. And since yesterday, my husband's sense of taste and smell has kind of been going away. Today, it was a lot worse. And so he's eating the the cookies, you know, we're, we're, we're sharing it. And I was like, oh, these are so good. And he was like, you know what? Yours are better. And I was like, oh, that's so nice of you to say. And for those of you who have been listening for a while, I love baking, love watching British baking. So I love trying new recipes. So that was such a high compliment because these cookies look like cakes. Like they're just so big and gooey and just wonderful. But anyway, so I was like, there's no way that's true. And then it kind of dawned on me like five minutes later, you don't really have a sense of taste. So your opinion actually is invalid at the moment. <laughs> But he, the fact he said it, I'm still going to take it as fact that my cookies are better than this professional company. But anyway, so yeah, COVID has hit our household. I'm really bummed out. I'm hoping it's, you know, it's not that bad. And if you're vaccinated, it's, you know, super mild, but it just kind of sucks that you're just kind of limited to not really doing anything. But Anyways, that's an update on my end, uh, but back to what we're actually here today for, and that is my wonderful interview with Dr. Kyle Ganson. Now, you guys buckle up because this was such a great episode, and we really tackle an issue that is so, so important because we don't talk enough about eating disorders among boys and men. Uh, we had one episode earlier about someone who shared his testimony and, and his experience and his struggle, and and he was just so honest and raw, and shout out Jason because I, I 
really enjoyed our conversation with you, but I want to know more. What's the research behind it? Um, so Dr. Kyle Ganson kind of pulls back the curtain a little bit on some of the work that he's been doing. Um, he has even a clinical background because he has a social work background as well. And so that was really fascinating because he has both a research side as well as clinical experience. And we do hone in on one specific aspect that really piques my interest and that's muscle building behaviors. Now, if you haven't noticed in social media, like the fitness industry, I guess it's always been a really big thing, right? But lately this intense need to like be buff and have muscles, even among women is really ramping up. Um, and it's becoming like compulsive exercise, all of that. You're seeing more and more of that. And I think we're just starting to learn more research and, and kind of the, the neurobiology, the social factors around this and, and how it can relate to eating disorders, disordered eating, compulsive exercise, all of that is related. So he really digs into that research and is still doing a lot of work. And it was just fascinating to me, like some of the performance enhancing substance use, like creatine and, and things like whey protein, all of that's not regulated by the FDA, which was kind of, I guess I, I knew that, but didn't know that officially. So it was just kind of like, wow. And so many people are using it just based on surveys and everything. So just, he kind of not only goes through the research, but kind of lays out like, what are some of the things that we need to do better? What are some key gaps that we need to keep filling? And and just raising more awareness about this among uh, boys and men. And so we need more people looking into this, like Dr. Ganson. We need more people sharing their stories and that it's okay that you're that you're not alone. I know that gets thrown around a lot. Oh, you're not alone. But it's true. I guess there's just no other way of saying it. And I'm hoping that this podcast can really help elevate the the importance of the issue and really make you feel like it's okay to talk about it and feel honest with yourself and and feel comfortable and safe to to open up about it that your feelings are all very valid and you deserve to to feel heard um so that's a little bit about kyle he's from the the university of toronto's factor in Wintosh faculty of social work so i'm so excited to bring to you my conversation with dr ganson and i will see you guys on the other side We are recording and we're here with Dr. Kyle Ganson. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. So tell us a little bit about yourself, like your, your educational background, where you're currently uh, working and of mm -hmm. course your research interests. Yeah, great. Um, well, thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm very excited to be here. Um, and as I was saying before we started recording, I'm always excited to chat about these topics. So any, any way we can get the, the word out there and some more interest for people is, is great. Um, so um, my background is uh, fairly unique, I think, in some ways. Um, I actually went to undergrad for photography, so I studied art. Um, and after that, I uh, realized that it's really challenging to make a living in the art world. And so I uh, decided to think about my next step. And I got really interested in working with people and kids and specific, specifically young children, um, you know, of like uh, middle school and high school ages. Um, and so I was doing some work there. And then I ended up going to get my MSW, my master in social work, because um, I figured that that would be a good career to you know, be able to do therapy and work directly mm -hmm. with people individually and help them through challenges um, throughout their life. So I did clinical practice for a number of years uh, in various settings, um, including any eating disorder settings, uh, a residential treatment program. And I did some outpatient work uh, in my own private practice and also through like a nonprofit that I used to work with um, running groups with them. Um, and then I moved into um, academia, um, went on to get my PhD um, at Simmons University in Boston. 
Um, and through that process and just through my own, uh, you know, research and clinical interests, um, that brought me to, um, you know, working, working on eating disorders and specifically like muscle building behaviors among this, this male population. Um, and we can talk more obviously about what encompasses that. Um, uh, but now I'm a assistant professor at the university of Toronto at the factor Imlintash faculty of social work here. Um, and yeah, my research interests are pretty, uh, broad, I guess, you know, I'm generally focused on the male experience around eating disorders, body image, muscle building behaviors, um, substance use, uh, also, you know, other sort of higher risk behaviors. If you can use, you know, kind of quote, 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 unquote, higher risk behaviors, uh, like, you know, suicidal behaviors, so other substance use, uh, risky driving, things of that nature. So, um, yeah, those are my, my research interests and where I come from. <laughs> That's, that's so cool. And like, like me, like I kind of, I wanted to go to college for, I will, I was debating between science and piano, but like, I, like my parents had to be like, you can't really make a career out of playing piano. <laughs> yes, <laughs> so, it's very true. <laughs> very hard, but like you, you like, those are such good hobbies and fun to do. But anyways, um, so that's, that's really fascinating. So I guess you kind of answered the question about how you got mm. started in mm-hmm. eating disorder research. Was that purely when you entered academia? Or was it a little bit when you had your private mm. practice and, and all of that? Yeah, so I was working at a um, a day treatment center for adolescents, um, um, and I was doing yeah, it was day treatment sort of general mental health, sort of high acuity, um, and you know most of the students, despite we despite the fact that we didn't take you know, students who were, um, uh, who had like diagnosed eating disorders, let's say they all had eating yeah. issues, right? Some of them didn't eat at all, yeah. but it wasn't like anorexia. It was more like an atypical kind of thing. Um, and it was maybe associated with depression or psychosis mm-hmm. or something on those lines, um, or anxiety. So, um, and some of the kids, there's also kids who binge eat, binged eat, um, as well. Uh, and so I was sort of interested in this area. I was sort of like trying to figure out what was going on. And then I started to work at a nonprofit, actually just about volunteering my time running a, a teen group. Um, that met one met once a week. Um, and I really enjoyed that. And I, you know, I was just connecting with the kids and sort of helping them through their process. We had a peer in the group who was a recovered adult. Um, and that was really interesting to me. Um, and then I thought, as I did that for a number of years, I continued to realize that like none, I think for the entire two years that I worked there, there was not a single boy that attended <laughs> at all. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, and as a weekly group, it was a drop-in group. We usually had about four or five young adolescent females. Um, and we never had a guy, I never had a boy. So that always piqued my interest. And then I moved into working at a residential program as a therapist there. Um, and it was a female residential program. So obviously there wasn't to be expected that there would be males there, but, um, I was, I was the sort of lone male clinician in the setting. Um, I was just, I was just kind of perpetually interested in like, where are all the males in this type right. of sphere? Um, whether it be clinicians, uh, whether it be, um, you know, pre- uh, you know, clients, or just anybody, right? I mean, any sort of connection. And there's obviously males within this this field, but um, I was continuing sort of be, to be interested in that. Um, and so as I moved into my doctorate, uh, doctoral program, um, you know, I was just trying to figure out like, what am I really interested in? You know, what am I going to spend a lot of time researching and learning about? And um, it was kind of this question of, of eating disorders among the male population and where are they and what are they doing and how do we gain more attention around that? Yeah, gosh. And it's so important. Like it's such a critical gap in the field right now. And so I, when I was reading more about your research and preparing for this podcast, I was like, mm-hmm. oh, this is just like everything that like I'm, I'm mm-hmm. really interested in because we hear a lot about the women and mm-hmm. other um, and that population, but not so much on the males. So mm-hmm. as you said, like, unfortunately, a lot of 
research has not been on eating disorders in males. And, and it's just really something that's underdiagnosed and undertreated. So why do you think this is the case? Is it possible that eating disorders perhaps just present themselves differently in men and boys and therefore have just been kind of overlooked all these years? Yeah, it's uh, maybe like the million dollar question. Um, yeah. I think there's multiple factors, of course, like many things that lead to this under treatment, under diagnosis. Um, certainly, I think there's generally been a strong narrative in society that they only affect women or females, you know, that very specific picture of a thin adolescent affluent white girl is, um, I think, very prominent and true uh, and remains that way, despite a lot of efforts to bring a lot of attention to the major diversity that uh, of people who experience eating disorders, not just, not just males, but, you know, people of different genders, people of different race, ethnicities, mm -hmm. um, income levels, et cetera. Um, so I think generally like the societal understanding of what an eating disorder is has, has definitely infiltrated the male population and not being treated, not being diagnosed. Um, that's one obviously component. I think there's a lot, because of that, there's a lot of stigma for, uh, you know, males. Mm -hmm. So I think it's hard for males to, identify, Hey, and this is sort of, I think, rooted in a lot of the ways males are socialized, which is not really being fully attuned to their own behaviors, to their own emotional, um, emotional state and capacities. Um, so they don't necessarily know to recognize like, Hey, I'm having this problem with food, or I have this issue with my body, or I want to change it. Um, so they may not have, they may not be able to use words to actually describe that. Um, so that obviously creates a problem. If you can't, if you can't identify it internally, how do you ask for help for it? Um, and then of course, stigma. So a lot of males don't actually reach out because they, they think, Hey, this can't be true. Or, um, it's only a girl thing. People are going to judge me. People are not going to take me seriously. Um, and so that obviously creates, creates a problem for people not reaching out and asking for help. Um, of course, those males who do reach out sometimes can be misdiagnosed, obviously, um, or, uh, you know, a lot of medical providers, unfortunately, are not, do not receive a lot of training about eating disorders at large in their medical training. So, um, if you go to a, like a general practitioner or um, a family doctor or a PCP or something along those lines, um, they may not just not have the knowledge to you know, do, do you ask the questions they need to ask um, yeah. and do the tests they need to do or whatever it might be um, to actually be able to diagnose and then, and then identify and treat the problem. So um, yeah, I think there's, there's certainly multiple factors and I'm sure that you could ask a hundred guys and they'd probably tell you um, a slew of different answers that are that probably overlap with those types of things. Um, and I think of course, there's also this, and I think we're gaining more knowledge about this as time goes on through the research and just through more awareness around this uh, problem that there is some unique presentations among boys and men who present with eating disorders. Um, you know, they're oftentimes not the true sort of typical picture of anorexia or bulimia or binge eating disorder. Um, and so, and so again, the more attention we can get to that, obviously the better. Um, and some of that, I think we'll probably chat more about, but um, you know, I think the more attention we can raise to like identifying the clinical characteristics of eating disorders among the male population and breaking down some of the, uh, misunderstandings of what it should or shouldn't look like, um, I think would be really helpful. And again, I think that I'll also say that I think that is important at large, right? Because right. I think we do miss a lot of people, um, again, of different gender identities, uh, or of different sexual orientations of a race, ethnicities of income levels, you know, people are missed all the time with eating yeah. disorders. Um, and so, yeah, I just put that out there too, because I, every time I talk about males, I also want to be conscious of the fact that like this happens to a lot of populations as well. Exactly. So, um, but yeah, that's sort of my thought. Exactly. No, I, I really appreciate that. And 
Um, and you're so right. And and one aspect you study specifically is like, and I'm really interested in this, is muscle enhancing and muscularity oriented behaviors mm-hmm. uh, among the male population. Um, so you published a recent review paper on this topic. Um, could you explain for listeners exactly like what mm-hmm. muscle enhancing behaviors are? Like I've only recently heard about it in like recent years maybe that's just because i'm like looking for it maybe but like is that a fairly new phenomenon like what do we know about it yeah i think that's a good question um i think there's yeah there's definitely been a lot at least i don't know i'm very immersed in it too so it's hard to really zoom out you know to thirty thousand feet and really see is it really gaining some more like at large attention i'm not sure 100 i think i think it actually is i mean i um like Personally, I've had conversations with more people about it. There's been, you know, more media focused around like the male eating disorder experience yeah. oftentimes touches on these muscle building and muscularity oriented behaviors um, or muscle dissatisfaction. Right. Um, so, yeah, I think there's definitely some more attention being given to it at large. Um, I think more can obviously be done, but um, there's obviously lots of things we need to do on the research side and on the clinical side and to really sort of bolster our knowledge around it to be able to actually yeah. identify and treat it and things of that nature. So obviously that would be helpful. Um, but to, to just sort of describe the behaviors, um, you know, these are just like a cluster of behaviors that people would engage in that um, are focused specifically on, you know, increasing at the same, at, on the one hand, increasing like muscle mass and strength um, and tone while on the other hand, also trying to maintain or reduce body fat and leanness and maintain leanness. So because there's sort of like a, uh, there's two sides of the coin kind of thing um, where you want to gain muscle mass and strength, but you also want to make sure you don't gain body fat or even reduce body fat. Oftentimes people sort of use a variety of behaviors um, to, to do that, right. To like manipulate their body in some capacity. Right. Um, and it's obviously driven by the strong, especially for males specifically, this like mu- muscular, bulky, lean uh, cut, um, you know, sort of V shaped, um, you know, body ideal. Um, so, you know, males are really driving for that. And so of course it includes things like weight training or sort of excessive exercise. Um, a lot of males sort of over consume proteins, um, you know, eating a certain amount of proteins and being very rigid with their dietary intake or elimination dieting. So removing certain categories of foods from their diet. Um, there's a phenomenon of bulking and cutting, which is sort of oscillating between, you know, bulking for a certain amount of period where you, you know, exercise and lift weights and, and maybe overeat, you know, by, or I don't want to say overeat, but, you know, overconsume maybe 500 calories a day. So you gain the muscle. Um, but then you actually go very quickly to a cutting phase where you then reduce the caloric intake. And so there's an expectation that the body then loses, um, loses some fat, but also of course does lose a little bit of muscle masses too. But again, that's sort of aimed at increasing that, that sort of cut lean, you know, um, defined body type. Um, of course, like appearance and performance enhancing drugs and substances or APEDS as they're commonly used or PES, performance enhancing substances, all types of different acronyms or terms for that one. Um, but yeah, I mean, they're extremely common. These are things like whey protein or creatine. Um, you know, of course, those are very common among the population. I mean, we've done a couple of recent studies that have shown that, you know, about a third of college males have used uh, protein supplements in their lives. And other larger studies have shown like, you know, 15% of crea- people have used creatine before. And these are very easily accessible substances. You can purchase them at the pharmacy. They're not regulated by the FDA. Um, you know, there's lots of, we could get into that for another another time if you wanted to, but there's lots of sort of issues around, um, there could be lots of issues around the use of these supplements. Um, and then of course, like on the more extreme end, there's like the illegal 
quote unquote illegal substances, though you're, they're banned. But of course, many people still receive them or able to get them through the internet, like steroids. Um, and there, that sort of ranges around like you know one to three percent of the population, um, and predominantly it's males who use steroids. So. Um, you know, the, the, these muscularity oriented behaviors are really driven, like, like I said, by that muscle ideal. Um, but that, of course, that muscle ideal is very, very, uh, challenging to achieve and often unattainable for many. Um, and I like to use the example of like the rock who is like promoting his body all the time. If you look at his Instagram page, I think he's like the top three or four people followed on Instagram. Like he's in the gym all the time. He, he, he's like, he's like that ideal, right. That, 99.9% of the male population won't ever be able to truly achieve unless they're spending full-time job at it. Like he does. So, um, so yeah, I think like they're going to, males are going to use different types of behaviors as best as possible to manipulate their body. Um, and yeah, try and try and achieve that ideal. And I think that's very much rooted in similar uh, overlaps around, um, eating disorders, which is body dissatisfaction pressures to achieve a certain body ideal, um, you know, things of that nature. Um, and there's been research that, um, you know, that I've done and that others have done that have shown, you know, relationships between engaging in these different types of behaviors, whether it be APEDs or compulsive and excessive exercise as it connects to eating disorders as well. So, um, yeah, there's very much an overlap between them and, um, yeah, even despite their fact that they're quite, quite nuanced, um, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of overlap there. Gotcha. And it's just, and I don't think it helps that like social media and things that you hear even like on, on TV or whatever, Mm -hmm. like, oh, the dad bod kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I bet that doesn't, it just kind of like goes to show there's just this stigma that males have to look a certain way. Uh, Women have to be thin and with tiny Mm -hmm. ways and men have to be bulky. And, and genetically, I don't think that's possible for, for human, for every human being to look like the rock. So I think it, it just, it really frustrates me when I hear about it. Um, yeah. So how do you, how do you exactly diagnose and, and treat muscle enhancing behaviors? How do you know, like, oh, it's a healthy mm-hmm. level of exercise versus mm-hmm. like a full blown, like problem? Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's like a, that's, that's also a million dollar question too. I think <laughs> um, they're in the sphere of these behaviors. I, I would guess, and I'm, I can't say exactly, but I would think that this, this is probably the least researched and understood area, which is how do we differentiate between like, I'm not sure what the right word is like appropriate or healthy or whatever, yeah. whatever term we want to qualify it with, with, with but um, what's the, what's sort of healthy or, you know, adaptive or okay <laughs> muscle building or muscle enhancing, you know, behaviors versus what's problematic. How do we, di- right. how do we sort of diagnose and understand those differences? Um, and, and, you know, of course there's like muscle dysmorphia, which is a sub diagnosis of body dysmorphic disorder. So I think in some ways that, that does help provide some level of differentiation, but of course that's not an eating disorder per se. That's a, that's like a, like a obsessive compulsive type disorder. So, um, yeah, I think there's like a lot of, I think there needs to be some more, uh, research, of course, but also just some more thinking among the academic community, among the clinical community to try and figure out how do we truly differentiate these things. Um, uh, and again, I think that comes with time and research um, and, and general sort of, yeah, just general sort of interest in this topic area. Um, I think when you look at, there are, of course, some newer tests actually and measures that have come out that have tried to, again, differentiate this a bit. Um, and of course, there are older ones too, like the M- muscle dysmorphic disorder inventory, which again, focuses specifically on, on muscle dysmorphia. There's like the drive for muscularity scale. So there's, there's a number of measures and scales that sort of get at 
um, constructs within these muscularity oriented behaviors. Um, but there, I think there's really few that truly capture like what we're trying to figure out, I guess here, which is those muscle building behaviors and the differentiation between problematic and not. Um, there's like the muscularity oriented eating test, which is a newer measure and the eating for muscularity scale, which is another newer measure. And again, they sort of ask very similar questions, though slightly different, of course, um, and differently set up. Um, and they all focus on behaviors aimed at like generally trying to increase muscularity in some capacity or reduce body fat in some way. Um, and there's obviously questions that sort of look at like functional and psychological impairment. So, you know, functionally, like, are you like having so much anxiety that you you know, can't go and hang out with friends or you right. miss the workout or you have to follow your regime, reg like your regimen. So specifically that you can't, you know, yeah. go to work um, and like psychological impairment, of course, which would be like super like high levels of anxiety or stress or something along those lines um, as it relates yeah. to um, the behaviors and your experience with them. So I think as a, if you were a clinician, um, I think my thought would be to be asking questions about those areas, which is what are the behaviors that people engage in? So, okay, does someone go to the gym and it seems pretty reasonable for them to go and lift weights, you know, three to four times a week and they take rest days, they don't go and they don't feel like it. Uh, you know, maybe they do eat some more protein than maybe like quote unquote recommended by dietary guidelines or something. Uh, but they're not like, you know, obsessing about the protein intake, measuring yeah. and counting macronutrients and grams. Um, oh, and, and then again, like maybe they're able to go to work and maintain those social relationships uh, with little anxiety or stress. That person's probably okay, right? But if you, if you add in more of these things that add stress or challenge for someone in their daily life, um, or the behaviors seem really over the top, um, you know, like maybe there is sort of uh, you know, uh, like dependence around steroid use yeah. or other sort of supplement use, right? Um, that would obviously raise concerns. Again, I'm not saying that's necessarily like diagnosable or a problem. Um, but I do think that that would raise red flags for me as a clinician to be like, what's going on here? Like, there's like five things that are sort of clustering around that make me think that something's happening for this person, just yeah. like we would for someone with the eating disorder. You know, yeah. we would, we don't sort of just say, oh, you have one behavior. So you have the eating disorder, right? It's like, there's a multitude right. of things we look at. Um, so I think that would be how I would diagnose. And I think treatment is yeah. sort of, I think a lot of, you know, kind of similar sort of, uh, related to eating disorders, probably a lot of CBT, um, you know, I think motivational interviewing would probably be pretty helpful. Um, but I think, again, that's an area where we just need to know more about yeah. and, and the problem, unfortunately, is that there's few research, like there's so few people who maybe reach that category of diagnostic criteria or yeah, something yeah. Um, that it's hard to run like clinical trials or even sort of test some of these, these um, treatments on them to see what actually works best. So um, yeah, there's, there's sort of, there's problems and nuances within the, the, the field and area that we need to figure out in order to make sure we are diagnosing if that even is the right term, quite honestly, um, and treating to make sure that we can help these people as best we can. So um, yeah. So much like everything in the eating disorder community, it's just everything's very complex and there's just a lot of factors involved, yes. which is just, uh, I commend everything that you guys are doing <laughs> to try and figure it out. So do we know some of the risk, risk factors that could lead to the development of these behaviors? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of the risk factors are very similar to what we would expect for eating disorders in general, okay. like, you know, body dissatisfaction, muscle dissatisfaction, gotcha. you know, experiencing bullying, being at maybe a higher weight, um, mm -hmm. you know, weight stigma, media pressures, 
Um, gender role socialization, I think, is pretty common. You know, males are often gendered and, and their socialization uh, process to sort of achieve certain, like, um, you know, traits or characteristics or portray a certain role, of course. And that often is like, you know, strength and stoicism and, you know, dominance, right? I think those are terms that would be very much overlapping between someone's drive for muscularity and also just their adherence to masculine norms. Um, you know, so like a lot, yeah, a lot of the same things that we would, we would expect for an eating disorder. Um, I think something that, um, I'm particularly interested in and one of the papers you referenced is, um, is, is sort of a review article, like you mentioned, but it's also like a call to sort of action yeah. or a call to research, which is trying to figure out, we know risk factors, right? Like we know that people who have maybe body dissatisfaction and are bullied, and then maybe there's media pressures and there's family yeah. pressures and there's this and that, like low self-esteem, right? That might lead them to these behaviors, but we don't actually know, like, how do people learn about these things, right? Like, how do we understand why or how somebody um, learns a certain exercise, yeah. you know, you know, practice to engage in, to build muscle, or how do we, how do they find out where steroids are and how do they access, access yeah. them? How do we know, how do you, how do they know how to use them and learn how to use them? Um, and how do they, and what is the sort of like trajectory of that process? So, you know, most people don't go like, I'm, I want to build muscle. I want to use steroids. Like that's a pretty big jump. I think most people really? go from maybe they start an exercise like weightlifting, you know, plan, maybe they move to, Oh, I need to, they hear in the gym, I need to eat more protein. So they start, you know, counting their macronutrients. Then they realize they can't meet the number of protein that they need. So they start using protein powders, then they add creatine, then they yeah. still not working. So maybe they use steroids, right? But, yeah. So figuring out that, that nuanced sort of trajectory, I think is really much needed because it opens up um, entry points for intervention um, and um, prevention. So um, that's something I'm particularly interested in. So it's sort of beyond the risk factors and more in like the perpetuating and uh, yeah. precipitating, you know, mechanisms that keep things moving in this area. Yeah, exactly. And so we're like related to that. I'm wondering then what your general thoughts are on the bodybuilding industry. Like you mm -hmm. referenced the rock. Um, mm -hmm. Do you think, cause I've, I've had friends compete mm -hmm. sometimes and, mm -hmm. you know, seeing those images for someone that has an eating disorder and mm -hmm. I was encouraged to get into weightlifting to build up my weight and stuff. Mm -hmm. I can see very easily this line being crossed, mm -hmm. but do you think that culture perpetuates this muscle enhancing behavior? Yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I think, I think, um, you know, it's not my one answer. Um, yeah, I think a lot of the behaviors we've talked about so far are generally seen as okay for the male population to engage mm -hmm. in. Like, I think, it's okay for males to like go to the gym and want to be stronger. And like, you know, a lot of males are not all males, but a lot of males who are in, you know, engaging in these behaviors are in, involved in some sort of sport. Right. And so that's seen as, you know, Hey, you're working out, you're trying to build muscle, you're trying to build perform, you're increasing your performance, you know, by doing all these things. Um, and, and that's going to be, you know, beneficial to your sport or your team. Right. Um, despite the fact that it might be, you know, psychologically challenging for you, or it might increase some functional impairment for you. Right. Again, not all, but some, of course. Um, so, um, yeah, I think, and, and I think even traditional eating disorder behaviors are seen as maybe again, okay. Within the male sphere, I think binge eating is a really good example of that. I think it's, it's sort of seen as okay for a male to maybe eat a whole pizza or something like that, or yeah. a tub of ice cream, like when they're in adolescence, because they, it's just seen as like, Oh, you're just growing. And so you, you're hungry and you're got to eat more. Right. Um, when it might actually be a binge eating episode. Right. 
Um, so, and I, and I think, I think that's, and I think even there's been research that has shown that males are less likely to kind of have that experience of like loss of control and those types of, you know, binge eating episodes. So I think that sort of conflates things and makes it challenging for men to really be able to differentiate any problem that they might have. Um, so I think to answer your question, yes, I think that there's a large, you know, sort of, you know, um, perpetuation, I think within society, um, regarding the body and bodybuilding industry specifically, again, I think it's really nuanced. It's hard to really say whether or not it's truly problematic. I imagine that there's a lot of bodybuilders who like, you know, very much enjoy what they do. And, you know, I'm not one to be like, Oh, you have a problem because you're doing this. That's not necessarily how I operate, but I do think that there's probably, um, um, you know, I, I think there's probably a, like a larger sleuth of people within the bodybuilding community that are struggling with these types of behaviors to a more extreme degree. Um, and it may be kind of like the nexus point of these muscularity oriented behaviors, where again, it's like a very high cluster of people who are engaging in like a lot of these behaviors. Um, but again, it's really sanctioned within their community. If you go to bodybuilding.com, it's all the, the blog posts and the conversations that are happening in that community are all focused on these behaviors. So it's like, how do you, you know, it's, how could you even say like, Oh, I have a problem here, but I really like what I'm in this community. Right. So, um, it's very, I think it's very murky and nuanced and, and, uh, not fully clear. Um, I, and because it's the nexus point, it might seem like the point of the, like the, like the light and the spotlight shines on, but I think it's actually quite, that's quite problematic also because the rest of the I don't know if it's a pyramid. I'm thinking of a nexus point as a pyramid, like the top <laughs> of the pyramid is the bodybuilding um, industry. And like below that is like the general population. Um, and, you know, we know from the research that like a large, large degree of population, like 25% of adolescents and young adults are trying to gain weight. Males specifically are trying to gain weight. 15% are using weightlifting or other sort of exercising to build muscle and, um, you know, you know, gain weight. We did a recent study looking at international samples of, of, of adults and like 10% of the males were trying to gain weight in the international sample. So like, I think that, that again, like the shining of bright on the building bodybuilding industry is kind of, um, you know, like, uh, misguided, <laughs> um, yeah. because yeah, I think it happens, it happens elsewhere and to pretty high levels of, of, um, prevalence. So. Yeah, I don't, uh, hopefully that you, answers your question. <laughs> no, yeah, absolutely. And like when you see those like stage shots or whatever, and they look so mm -hmm. like muscular, they, that's just a very unhealthy level of body fat that they have. But mm -hmm. it's made to seem like it's normal, and that's the, that's what you should be looking like all the time. Right. Um, so I think the people that maybe don't have a full full blown you know problem with muscle enhancing mm -hmm. behaviors should be more open and saying like oh, like, this is not how a normal body should actually look like. I just do this as a sport. Um, but your body has to have a certain level of fat in order to operate for the hormones to be working correctly. Right. So I don't know. Like you said, it's very murky, yeah. um, very difficult. Yeah. But like, yeah. you can quickly get sucked into that community just mm -hmm. by like oh, going but... through social media. It's just crazy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think social media is a huge... I almost think more than the bodybuilding industry itself. I think social media and things like YouTube influencers yes, and people who, yeah. um, you know, put out videos about how to do specific things. Um, I've done some recent interviews with people who engage in these behaviors. And I would say like 95% of them have referenced, you know, influencers, again, if that's the term we want to use as like people where they gathered information from or learned things about, um, you know, these different behaviors. So um, even as much as like steroid use and protein use and creatine and all that stuff. Um, 
you know, how to actually, you know, again, manipulate the body. And those are people who are, they're not, this is not like necessarily verified information. I think some of them as people have told me, like some of them are more well backed by some level of research um, mm. and they cite research in their videos. But um, I think, you know, we can also, we can also sort of manipulate research, <laughs> the, the translation of research, mm. how we want to in many ways. So um, I think, yeah, I think it's, I think it's a problem, right? Because if it, if it, people are going to those avenues for learning information about these different behaviors and supplements and all that stuff, um, and it's not regulated or sort of like checked in on that can be really problematic. Um, you know, again, people, and especially for young people who are, who are going to be more likely to engage yeah. in these behaviors because they're just not as well educated on like, Oh, this is probably not something I should do. Well, instead of like, you know, and, and sort of thinking critically about the behaviors that people tell them they should or shouldn't be doing. Exactly. It's oh, a big issue. Um, okay. So switching gears a little bit, cause the, mm -hmm. and I love talking about this um, and you referenced it just um, earlier. Um, what really drew me to your work was like essentially there's this call to action paper mm -hmm. um, where you describe not only just the gap in the knowledge for research in eating disorders, but mm -hmm. also like some of the policy gaps in enhancing mm -hmm. screening and training for, mm -hmm. for health professionals. So you call out um, mm -hmm. the 21st century cures act, which was this mm -hmm. sweeping legislative mm -hmm. package that was passed in 2016, so over five years ago now, that was really designed to help accelerate the development of new innovations and patient mm -hmm. treatments. So tell us a little bit more about this call to action. You gave us a glimpse into it, but how do you see eating disorder treatment mm -hmm. like fitting into that framework? Um, well, so the American 21st Century Cures Act was the first legislation, federal legislation to really emphasize and have provisions focused on eating disorders. Um, and so it did talk a lot about, um, you know, developing and increasing awareness, uh, prevention, education and training, um, these, you know, obviously key areas within the field of eating disorders and, and really just solidifying again in federal policy, which is great that this is an area that needs to be looked at and, and funded. Um, so that's, that's really an important component in and of itself that eating disorders were just like put on the map here um, and for, you know, future things, uh, future red legislation time. and all that. Um, yeah, about time kind of thing, right? Um, <laughs> and so my hope really was um, to, yeah, to, to, well, to call to action that like, this is probably going to happen, like, you know, because mm -hmm. there's a federal legislation that's talking about this. Um, my hope was also then to highlight that this shouldn't be an opportunity to overlook the male population, essentially. Um, and okay. so I was trying to sort of highlight in that paper um, gaps in uh, the current treatment guidelines that we have, um, specifically around like medical and um, um, sort of like healthcare for healthcare professionals, um, you know, that focus on yeah, the, the major gaps that we have around inaccuracies focused around like BMI. Um, you know, just different ways in which we measure things like bone density for males is slightly needs to be slightly different. So just highlighting that and hoping that we will continue to develop. I mean, we don't have a lot of medical knowledge quite yet enough to really create, you know, tailored treatment guidelines for males. But that's something that my colleagues and I are continuing to try and work on, which is gathering enough information, gathering enough clinical knowledge, uh, I'm sorry, clinical research and things of that nature to be able to then put together and package like, hey, this is what you know, uh, a, a sort of clear treatment guidance should be that focuses specifically on this population. Um, we have that at large, but of course, it's very much rooted in the female research population. 
Um, and again, that there's gaps in that, that missed the male population. So I was, I was hoping to not only recognize that, Hey, this is good. The, the, the ACA sort of puts this in here, or, I'm sorry, yeah. not the ACA, the, the, the 21st century cures act puts this in here. Um, it was obviously a call to attention for like all of, hopefully all of, all of the people who are uh, doing this research or clinical experience and legislature legislators to use, um, but also then recognize, Hey, how do we infuse these, any type of, um, provision or activity that we do based on this and, and emphasizes some aspect of the male experience. Um, so that, that was kind of the main hope with it is, is, yeah. is that, um, it's funny. I, I was, when you asked the question, I was, um, I was like thinking about it and I, I've sort of fallen off the map a little bit with that because I've moved to Canada. And so I'm really thinking about like the can Canadian context true, now. True. A bit more. I um, thought about that too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, um, well, I still of course follow the U S and what's going on there, but, um, yeah. And I, what that struck, what struck my mind was that like, despite the fact that Canada has, you know, a public health care system. Um, and I think generally the healthcare system from what I've heard from other people is that it sort of works a little bit more succinctly in many ways. I mean, there's obviously error issues with it and weaknesses. Um, but, uh, but one of the main weaknesses around eating disorders treatment is that there's very few publicly funded beds, um, in like higher levels of care. And so, um, again, not surprising. I think this is common. Um, uh. But again, it creates a similar problem as it would in the States, uh, where you have to be quote unquote sick enough to kind of get yeah. one of the beds. Um, and, and so, yeah, I think, I think there's something unique about that as well, that, you know, these, these issues like are, you know, I guess like international in some form and exactly. fashion. And um, how do we make sure that all, you know, all these governments are sort of working on the best way possible to you know, help all as many people as possible. So that was just something that came to my mind as, as you asked the question. Yeah, no, it, it is really interesting. Um, so in the years, and I'm not sure when you moved to Canada, mm -hmm. but have you seen any progress in trying to implement the 21st Century Cures Act and trying to infuse eating disorder, enhancing eating mm -hmm. disorder research and, and more clinical knowledge about it since it was passed? Because it's been over five years. Mm -hmm. um, so has yeah. there been any progress? Yeah, the um, uh, the Eating Disorders Coalition, I think is what it's called, mm -hmm. um, has done a lot of advocacy in this area. And I would encourage people who are interested in being more involved in advocacy uh, for eating disorders on like the federal and state levels to get involved in the Eating Disorder Coalition. Um, they have like an advocacy day. I'm not sure if it was in person this year. It probably wasn't. It was but, virtual. Um, it was virtual. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, that's just like a great opportunity to meet with legislators and talk with yeah. them about what's going on. And, you know, again, try and move the needle where they move in our direction, which is increasing funding, increasing more attention to this issue. Um, so that's obviously an important thing to highlight. Um, and from, I mean, my, my sort of cursory uh, look to make sure I'm as, as most up to date as possible, it seems like there's been some more recent funding that's come out um, around eating disorder prevention and intervention within the community. Um, I think it was like, I don't know, I'm not sure either a couple million, I, I don't remember the exact number, but um, I think that's obviously, you know, important because we need, we need more funding. And I think there's been a lot of, a uh, lot of sort of, um, I guess it's, I guess it's research or just evidence that has shown that despite the number of people who experience eating disorders of like a disproportionate amount of money that's funded towards it. So any more funding that we can obviously provide is very yeah. important. Um, and then, um, the Anna Weston act, which is, um, yeah. a big, you know, sort of legislative package, I think that has been trying to move through 
the federal legislation for many years now, I think, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, I think just recently did pass through the house. Um, yeah. and, um, and that would focus on, you know, training and healthcare professional training, healthcare professionals. So, um, you know, all important things. Um, and I think that's great. I think there's again, like, like as usual, there's more work to be done. And, um, unfortunately policy moves kind of slowly and the implementation of policy can be quite challenging. So, um, I think whatever is being, whatever is being done, some such as like the Anna Weston Act or some increased funding, I think it's just really important that for people like myself or people who are interested in sort of diversifying the research and the, yeah. the treatment and awareness space of um, eating disorders is making our voice known to say like, hey, we just got to make sure that we touch on the, the, the large breadth of people who experience right. eating disorders and um, bring attention to that and, and make sure it's mm -hmm. adequate for everybody. Right. And I think there is a renewed sense and a renewed push on at least Capitol Hill because of mm -hmm. the social media stuff that came out yes. with Facebook and Instagram. Totally. So thankfully, I think like there was a whole hearing about it. And I yeah. think, I mean, it was just so sad to hear a lot of the stories, but at the same time, I was like, well, finally, there's been some attention mm -hmm. to this. Um, so I hope that that will kind of progress things along. Because like you said, and I work in policy now, it is so slow and yeah. things are just yeah. very cyclical. Like it will get yeah. a lot of attention for a couple of weeks and then just die mm -hmm. down and you never hear about right. it again for five years. So yeah. that's that's one of the challenges with with policy, especially with something that's just so that's just hurting so many people right now with eating disorders. Yeah. It's just, it breaks my heart. Um, yeah. And hopefully with COVID, I mean, not hopefully with COVID. Right. <laughs> it's always a funny <laughs> statement, right? Um uh, I think with COVID, um, you know, there's obviously been lots of documented increase in cases of eating exactly. disorders and need for treatment around eating disorders. Um, and so, yeah, hopefully this isn't, that will be another sort of catalyst for, um, right. for making some, some change, right. Um, increasing. And I think, you know, I mean, I think in the U S there's challenges around insurance, of course, covering oh gosh, eating disorders yeah. and, um, or eating disorder treatment. Um, and again, that sort of idea of like who can, who deserves treatment based on certain criteria. I think when you look at that specifically around the male population, I think most males, despite, despite maybe having high levels of acuity may not meet the like criteria around medical instability per se. And so, mm -hmm. you know, that creates some issues around getting the adequate treatment that they might need. So right. I think that any legislation that focuses on that would be, I think, very helpful as well. So Right. Um, yeah, there's just more work to be not done. And like, hopefully we can kind of keep it in the narrative of policymakers and exactly. the changes that need to happen. Exactly. You brought up insurance. So out of curiosity, does in Canada is eating disorder treatment and therapy, is that covered in insurance there? Yeah. So there's publicly funded um, treatment here, uh, which would include like higher levels of care, like day treatment centers, you know, certain day treatment centers and certain hospitals. Um, so in that case, yes, I think if you, you not uh, the, the federal or the, I'm sorry, the provincial, like, um, uh, health insurance plan that I have, for example, like that wouldn't cover me to go and see like a psychotherapist and outpatient okay. treatment around eating disorders, if that was what I needed. Um, so you have to have a supplementary insurance to pay for that. Um, okay. so again, there's nuances, right. And, and I think a lot of people do have the supplementary supplementary insurance. Um, but a lot of people do rely on the sort of the public health insurance, of course, cause it's, mm -hmm. it's free. I mean, there's obviously taxes related to it, but, um, it's, it's free to have. And so you can, yeah, you can go to the hospital, but, um, if you don't meet the criteria or there's not a bed available, uh, then right. you might not get the space. Right. Um, right. So, so yeah, there's definitely, 
yeah, there's definitely issues with it as well. Sure, <laughs> um, sure. And I think there's also the same issue, which is, you know, maybe not enough practitioners who are adept enough to be able to, you know, work in this sphere and in this population on an outpatient level. Um, you know, of course there are some that are well-trained and able to do it, but, um, yeah. you know, I think similar to the U S there's just a need for more people who have the capacity to do that, um, and feel confident in doing it. And, uh, which is not easy. It's not an easy you know, issue to treat and work with. So. Gosh, it's, such a, it's such a mess, but at the same time, <laughs> I'm glad some people are trying to look into it. So I don't want to take mm-hmm. up any more of your time. So I have one final front of question. I like mm-hmm. to close, but especially since you're a clinician, sure. you have a lot of experience in this. Mm-hmm. So for listeners out there, particularly males or, or those that identify mm-hmm. as male, what is your advice if, if they are just currently struggling with an eating disorder, perhaps, you know, this muscle performance mm-hmm. behavior, this obsession with, with being mm-hmm. muscular and they want to seek help, but they're just really afraid to, to take that first step and to talk to someone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's a, that's a really good question. Um, oh, I think the first step, first thought I would have was just like, you're not really, you're not alone. Right. I think there's mm-hmm. lots of documented evidence at this point that suggests that eating disorders affect males, um, by dissatisfaction affects males, uh, again, at mm-hmm. pretty high rates and prevalence than we might've thought previously. Um, and so I would, my advice would be don't get trapped in the narrative of popular culture or general population, uh, you know, narrative, which is, it doesn't affect me. It shouldn't be a problem for me. I shouldn't, this is, this is not a thing. Um, yeah. if you're struggling with, and with body image, if with eating, um, with exercise, um, it's important to recognize that and, um, ask for help. Um, I think the asking for help is the more, the more challenging, um, right. sort of step of course. And it is for, I think most people with eating disorders, quite honestly. Um, and so I, one of the thoughts I have is, is kind of maybe a little bit counterintuitive, but it's sort of like maybe do a little bit of research and consider reaching out to someone, um, who you think would be able to hear you. And so what I mean by that is like, who might be a good person to talk to, whether it be a personal connection, whether it be a medical professional, a therapist, um, you know, do a little bit of background on certain people. Like maybe you find a therapist specifically who focuses on eating disorders. That's the top thing that they say they work with, um, or body dissatisfaction or body image, um, uh, you know, maybe you find a doctor that specifically is around, I don't know, athletics or something like that, where you might be able to chat with them. Again, you want to make sure that there's some background information on them that would suggest that they have some knowledge around eating disorders and body image. Um, and, and I think the other thing is, is that, um, sometimes doing research too can help you learn the language that might be most helpful to communicate to providers. So if you did some research and learned more about like, oh, this is the problem I've been having. Now I have the words to tell my practitioner about it. My like my general practitioner or my PCP, you know, again, that might help communicate them, you know, what you need versus relying on them to ask you the specific questions that they might not know to ask or that they might not feel comfortable asking because you're a male, or they might just presume you wouldn't have that problem because you're a male. Yeah. Um, so I think it's unfortunately, I think, unfortunately you do sort of might, you might need to do a little more background to be able to communicate your needs to other people. Um, yeah. So that would be my other, my other sort of, um, piece of advice, uh, though, sadly is a piece of advice is to sort of make sure that you know how to communicate and talk about this stuff. Um, yeah. Yeah. Advocating for yourself is so important. And I think ensuring that ensuring people that there's no shame in going Mm -hmm. to someone and, and, and doing the research and like reading about and like, Oh yeah, that, that is what Mm -hmm. I do. And, but it's, it's okay. It's like, I can get help. There is help. Right. Um, I think that's so important, but Mm -hmm. 
That's great advice. And I, I love all of the research that you're doing. I know you're incredibly busy and it's just, just a, it's an evolving door, I guess, of new things coming in and new information and people that you're, that you're meeting and talking with. So I appreciate you lending your time today and your expertise. This was fascinating. I just, I learned so much from you. Good. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm, I'm hoping this is helpful. brings us to the end of this episode of Picture Blurfic. Thanks again to Dr. Kyle Ganson for, for lending your time and expertise on all of the work that you're doing. I could have talked for hours with him. I really enjoyed this kind of stuff. And I guess there's just some part of me that really liked, oh, if no one knows about it, then I'm going to be the one to figure it out or at least like at least learn about it. I really like digging and digging. So I really can't wait to see all of the future work that he and his team um, will, will uncover in this very important issue. And I hope that it becomes more normal to talk about the, the reality of eating disorders, these muscle building behaviors. I can't talk today. It's COVID. <laughs> These muscle building behaviors uh, among men and, and even women, you know, the fitness industry, there's this fine line between making sure you you incorporate exercise and fitness in a healthy manner and and not let it overtake your life. Like just like we we talked about with with Dr. Ganson, he said, if you just start to feel like you can't miss a rest day or, or you can't take an extra rest day or it's really just affecting your your mood and your, your quality of life because you you skip the gym or something then it's something that needs to be reevaluated. It's something that I really struggle with too, that I can't let that guilt take away from enjoying life around me. So make it, it's all about balance. It's really hard. And it's something you have to face in recovery if you're really, truly being honest with yourself. Um, so I really appreciated this conversation. There's so much more work to be done and communication and raising awareness. It's never going to stop. So we need to keep banding together and and working on this. Researchers, advocates, policymakers, everybody has a has a role to play. Um, and I and I hope to bring everyone together on on a platform like this sometime in in the podcast and really just kind of hash those those questions out. Um, so once again, I, I appreciate all of you for listening. If you can leave a five star review subscribe um, and leave us some comments on the on the podcast sorry i'm looking at something i'm like what is that i'm down in my husband's basement and i'm like how does he work like this this is, i'm in his office <laughs> i'm just confused um anyways um yes please leave us any kind of um likes and comments on the podcast just so that it can get elevated and people can find out more about us if you have other suggestions on people you would like to see on the podcast shoot me an email i always include everything that um that we talked about in the podcast so dr ganson's uh, papers will be included in the episode description. So make sure to read all about it and all of the other work that he's been doing. We didn't get a chance to talk about everything, um, but my email will also be included if you guys want to want to um, contact me in any way to, to let me know what you think about the podcast. And that's pretty much all I have. I got to go tell my husband to turn down the volume. He's listening, he's watching some Marvel movie upstairs and it's just like the house is shaking. I'm like, I know you have COVID, but really, he's just using it for every excuse. I'm like, can you put your dish you know, away? But I have COVID. I'm like, no, like, come on. It's very mild symptoms. You're, you're fine. <laughs> anyways, I could be a little bit too harsh, but anyway, he's milking it for all it's worth. Anyways, I hope all of you stay safe and well, and remember that your worth and your, your beauty and your 
your presence in this world is not dictated by what social media says, by the number on the scales, by the size of your clothing. None of that matters. That's all just numbers that have no bearing on on your true worth. And I hope you take that to heart and that you go into the rest of the week, this new week, however, and whenever you're listening to this podcast, and that you have a great rest of the day. Bye.